This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Chapman. September 2006. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 2. Winter Storms and Spring Floods. The Bridal Vale and the Upper Yosemite Falls, on account of their height and exposure, are greatly influenced by winds. The common summer winds that come up the river canyon from the plains are seldom very strong, but the north winds do some very wild work, worrying the falls and the forests, and hanging snow banners on the comet peaks. One wild winter morning I was awakened by storm wind that was playing with the falls as if they were mere wisps of mist, and making the great pines bow and sing with glorious enthusiasm. The valley had been visited a short time before by a series of fine snowstorms, and the floor and the cliffs and all the region round about were lavishly adorned with its best winter jewellery. The air was full of fine snow dust, and pine branches, tassels, and empty cones were flying in an almost continuous flock. Soon after sunrise, when I was seeking a place safe from flying branches, I saw the lower Yosemite fall thrashed and pulverized from top to bottom into one glorious mass of rainbow dust, while a thousand feet above it the main upper fall was suspended on the face of the cliff in the form of an inverted bow, all silvery white and fringed with short wavering strips. Then, suddenly assailed by a tremendous blast, the whole mass of the fall was blown into thread and ribbons, and driven back over the brow of the cliff whence it came, as if denied admission to the valley. This kind of storm work was continued about ten or fifteen minutes, then another change in the play of the huge, exulting swirls and billows and upheaving domes of the gale allowed the baffled fall to gather and arrange its tattered waters and sink down again in its place. As the day advanced, the gale gave no sign of dying, Excepting brief lulls, the valley was filled with its weariless roar, and the cloudless sky grew garish white from myriads of minute, sparkling snow spicules. In the afternoon, while I watched the upper fall from the shelter of a big pine tree, it was suddenly arrested in its descent at a point about halfway down, and was neither blown upward nor driven aside, but simply held stationary in mid-air as if gravitation below that point in the path of its descent had ceased to act. The ponderous flood weighing hundreds of tons was sustained, hovering, hesitating, like a bunch of thistledown, while I counted one hundred and ninety. All this time the ordinary amount of water was coming over the cliff and accumulating in the air, swedging and widening and forming an irregular cone, about seven hundred feet high, tapering to the top of the wall, the whole standing still, jesting on the invisible arm of the north wind. At length, as if commanded to go on again, scores of arrowy comets shot forth from the bottom of the suspended mass, 
as if escaping from separate outlets. The brow of El Capitan was decked with long snow streamers like hair. Cloud's rest was fairly enveloped in drifting gossamer elms, and the half-dome loomed up in the garish light like a majestic living creature clad in the same gauzy wind-woven drapery, while upward currents meeting at times overhead made it smoke like a volcano. An Extraordinary Storm and Flood Glorious as are these rocks and waters arrayed in storm robes, or chanting rejoicing in everyday dress, they are still more glorious when rare weather conditions meet to make them sing with floods. Only once, during all the years I have lived in the valley, have I seen it in full flood bloom. In 1871, the early winter weather was delightful. The days all sunshine, the nights all starry and calm, calling forth fine crops of frost crystals on the pines and withered ferns and grasses for the morning sunbeams to sift through. In the afternoon of December the 16th, when I was sauntering on the meadows, I noticed a massive crimson cloud growing in solitary grandeur above the cathedral rocks. Its form, scarcely less striking than its colour, it had a picturesque bulging base, like an old sequoia, a smooth tapering stem, and a bossy down-curling crown, like a mushroom. All its parts were coloured alike, making one mass of translucent crimson. Wondering what the meaning of that strange lonely red cloud might be, I was up betimes next morning looking at the weather, but all seemed tranquil as yet. Towards noon, grey clouds with a loose, curly grain like bird's-eye maple began to grow, and late at night rain fell, which soon changed to snow. Next morning, the snow on the meadows was about ten inches deep, and it was still falling in a fine, cordial storm. During the night of the 18th, heavy rain fell on the snow, but as the temperature was 34 degrees, the snow line was only a few hundred feet above the bottom of the valley, and one had only to climb a little higher than the tops of the pines to get out of the rainstorm into the snowstorm. The streams, instead of being increased in volume by the storm, were diminished, because the snow sponged up part of their waters and choked the smaller tributaries. But about midnight the temperature suddenly rose to 42 degrees, carrying the snow line far beyond the valley walls, and next morning Yosemite was rejoicing in a glorious flood. The comparatively warm rain falling on the snow was at first absorbed and held back, and so also was that portion of the snow that the rain melted, and all that was melted by the warm wind, until the whole mass of snow was saturated and became sludgy and at length slipped and rushed simultaneously from a thousand slopes in wildest extravagance, heaping and swelling flood over flood, and plunging into the valley in stupendous avalanches. Awakened by the roar, I looked out and at once recognized the extraordinary character of the storm. The rain was still pouring in torrent abundance, and the wind at gale speed, was doing all it could with the flood-making rain. 
the section of the north wall visible from my cabin, was fairly streaked with new falls. Wild, roaring singers that seemed strangely out of place. Eager to get into the midst of the show, I snatched a piece of bread for breakfast and ran out. The mountain waters, suddenly liberated, seemed to be holding a grand jubilee. The two sentinel cascades rivaled the great falls at ordinary stages, and across the valley by the three brothers I caught glimpses of more falls than I could readily count, while the whole valley throbbed and trembled and was filled with an awful, massive, solemn, sea-like roar. After gazing a while, enchanted with the network of new falls that were adorning and transfiguring every rock in sight, I tried to reach the upper meadows where the valley is widest, that I might be able to see the walls on both sides, and thus gain general views. But the river was over its banks, and the meadows were flooded, forming an almost continuous lake dotted with blue, sludgy islands while innumerable streams roared like lions across my path, and were sweeping forward rocks and logs with tremendous energy over ground where tiny gilias had been growing but a short time before. Climbing into the talus slopes, where these savage torrents were broken among earthquake boulders, I managed to cross them and force my way up the valley to Hutchings Bridge, where I crossed the river and waded to the middle of the upper meadow. Here, most of the new falls were in sight, probably the most glorious assemblage of waterfalls ever displayed from any one standpoint. On that portion of the south wall between Hutchings and the Sentinel, there were ten falls plunging and booming from a height of nearly 3,000 feet, the smallest of which might have been heard miles away. In the neighborhood of Glacier Point, there were six, between the Three Brothers and Yosemite Fall, nine, between Yosemite and Royal Arch Falls, ten, from Washington Column to Mount Watkins, ten, on the slopes of Half Dome and Clouds Rest, facing Mirror Lake and Tenaya Canyon, eight, on the shoulder of Half Dome, facing the valley, three. Fifty-six new falls occupying the upper end of the valley, besides a countless host of silvery threads gleaming everywhere. In all the valley, there must have been upwards of a hundred. As if celebrating some great event, falls and cascades in Yosemite costume were coming down everywhere from fountain basins far and near, and, though newcomers, they behaved and sang as if they had lived here always. All summer visitors will remember the comet forms of the Yosemite Fall and the laces of the Bridal Veil and Nevada. In the falls of this winter jubilee, the lace forms predominated, but there was no lack of thunder-toned comets. The lower portion of one of the sentinel cascades was composed of two main white torrents, with the space between them filled in, with chained and beaded gauze of intricate pattern, through the singing threads of which the purplish-gray rock could be dimly seen. 
the series above Glacier Point was still more complicated in structure, displaying every form that one could imagine water might be dashed and combed and woven into. Those on the north wall between Washington Column and the Royal Archfall were so nearly related they formed an almost continuous sheet, and these again were but slightly separated from those about Indian Canyon. The group about the three brothers and El Capitan, owing to the topography and cleavage of the cliffs back of them, was more broken and irregular. The Tissiac Cascades were comparatively small, yet sufficient to give that noblest of mountain rocks a glorious voice. In the midst of all this extravagant rejoicing, the Great Yosemite Fall was scarce heard until about three o'clock in the afternoon. Then I was startled by a sudden thundering crash, as if a rock avalanche had come to the help of the roaring waters. This was the flood wave of Yosemite Creek, which had just arrived delayed by the distance it had to travel, and by the choking snows of its widespread fountains. Now, with volume tenfold increased beyond its springtime fullness, it took its place as leader of the glorious choir. And the winds, too, were singing in wild accord, playing on every tree and rock, surging against the huge brows and domes and outstanding battlements, deflected hither and thither, and broken into a thousand cascading roaring currents in the canyons, and low bass drumming swirls in the hollows. And these, again, reacting on the clouds, eroded immense cavernous spaces in their grey depths, and swept forward the resulting detritus in ragged trains like the moraines of glaciers. These cloud movements, in turn, published the work of the winds, giving them a visible body and enabling us to trace them. As if endowed with independent motion, a detached cloud would rise hastily to the very top of the wall, as if on some important errand, examining the faces of the cliffs, and then perhaps as suddenly descend to sweep imposingly along the meadows, trailing its draggled fringes through the pines, fondling the waving spires with infinite gentleness, or gliding behind a grove or a single tree, bringing it into striking relief as it bowed and waved in solemn rhythm. Sometimes, as the busy clouds drooped and condensed or dissolved to misty gauze, half of the valley would be suddenly veiled, leaving here and there some lofty headland cut off from all visible connection with the walls, looming alone, dim, spectral, as if belonging to the sky. Visitors, like the new falls, come to take part in the glorious festival. Thus for two days and nights in measureless extravagance the storm went on, and mostly without spectators, at least of a terrestrial kind. I saw nobody out, bird, bear, squirrel, or man. Tourists had vanished months before, and the hotel people and labourers were out of sight, careful about getting cold and satisfied with views from windows. 
The bears, I suppose, were in their canyon boulder dens, the squirrels in their knot-hole nests, the grouse in close fir groves, and the small singers in the Indian canyon chaparral, trying to keep warm and dry. Strange to say, I did not see even the water oozels, though they must have greatly enjoyed the storm. This was the most sublime waterfall flood I ever saw. Clouds, winds, rocks, waters, throbbing together as one. And then to contemplate what was going on simultaneously with all this in other mountain temples. The big Tuolumne Canyon, how the white waters and the winds were singing there. And in Hetch Hetchy Valley and the Great King's River Yosemite, and in all the other Sierra canyons and valleys from Shasta to the southernmost fountains of the Kern, thousands of rejoicing flood waterfalls chanting together in jubilee dress. End of chapter 2